Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hi, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today I am very pleased to introduce to you Dr. Robert Lefkowitz. Dr. Lefkowitz is an American physician who's an internist as well as a cardiologist and biochemist. He is best known for his groundbreaking discoveries that reveal the inner workings of an important family of G-protein coupled receptors, for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2012. Today, as many as 30% of all prescription drugs are designed to fit like keys into the similarly structured locks of the Lefkowitz identified receptors. Everything from antihistamines to ulcer drugs to beta blockers that help relieve hypertension, angina, and coronary heart disease. But today, Bob joins us on the author's corner to talk about his journey and his process of writing his memoir, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm. Bob's wit and great storytelling make his book a terrific read. And get ready because he is about to regale us with some amazing stories from his life, as well as key moments in the development of this memoir that is truly a joy to read. So I hope that you enjoy this interview. So Bob, welcome to the Author's Corner. Pleasure to be here with you. I'm so delighted to have you because I've checked out your book and it's really entertaining and engaging and incredibly interesting as well. And it's not very often that we get to talk to someone who's written and published a memoir. And I think that, you know, yours is particularly interesting. So I wanted to chat with you today. We're going to talk about a lot about the process of like what you went through and what it was like for you in writing it. And, you know, just before we got into this recording, you started to talk about like, so this is really the one book. I mean, tell me more about your background before you wrote this book. I mean, in terms of writing. In terms of writing, (laughs) I've written about 900 scientific papers, okay, which is obviously a totally different genre, if I may use that term. And the only other book I've ever participated in was the co-authorship of a two-volume textbook of biochemistry about 40 years ago, which I view to this day as about the only professional thing I've done in my long career that I regret. Oh, Uh, really? Yeah. It was a total waste of my time, I felt. I mean, I'm a scientist, so what I enjoy is producing new knowledge. And what I learned in writing that book is the idea of rehashing things that are already known due to the research of other people just didn't uh, wind my clock. I just, I hated it. Yeah, it was really 
And so compared to that, because, and that would have been an academic textbook that would be yes. read by what, medical students? Is that the? Medical students and graduate students. And graduate students. Okay. So then contrast that to writing a memoir, which is different. So you regret writing the other book. Tell me a little bit about like when you look at doing the memoir project overall, what are some of your big well, picture impressions of that experience? Well, it's interesting to hear you frame that question that way. Because if I think of it in that context, I would have to say this, writing the memoir was as close to the opposite extreme as I can imagine. I loved the experience. And we'll talk more about how we did it because I didn't do it alone. But it was a sheer delight. And it was, uh, it made for a wonderful, roughly about, actually the, the whole project in terms of the writing was probably just a little over a year. So it wasn't all that long. I loved it. One might say, that's because you were writing about your favorite subject yourself, but I would push back a little on that. Maybe not too hard, though. <laughs> well, you're definitely very involved in the scenes. <laughs> and though, I mean, I didn't get a chance to read every word of it, but from what I've read, I mean, you really are pulling from lots of different aspects of your life and, you know, not just your scientific life. Well, that is true. And by the way, I'm going to mention the name of the book right now, if, if I may. A funny, yeah. thing, a funny thing happened on the way to Stockholm, and it is, in fact, a memoir. Shall I tell you how I got involved in writing it? Please, yes. That in itself is an interesting story. As you will learn in the course of this hour, I'm a bit of a rock on tour. I love hearing stories. I love telling stories. Everything reminds me of a story. And as I approach my 80th birthday, I've accumulated a lot of stories. So anybody who's worked with me, and that includes right around 250 grad students and mostly postdocs, not to mention many dozens of, in addition to that, many dozens of undergrads. And anybody who's worked with me knows that I love to tell stories and regale them with stories, etc. I'd say for about the past 20 years, there's been kind of a drumbeat of people saying, you know, Bob, you really got to write these stories up and share them. And I never would have done it. It just didn't seem all that attractive as a way to spend my time. So I, and maybe I had these, still had post-traumatic stress from the biochemistry book. Right. Uh, so I never would have done it. But then one of my postdoctoral fellows from the mid nineties, now a full professor of pharmacology at Emory University named Randy Hall, did an interesting thing. Of all my graduates, he's probably the most devoted Duke basketball fan. And you know, we have a terrific team every year. And so I would say once every couple of three years, he would come up, I have two season tickets, and we would go to a game together. And so several years ago, he was here for such an occasion. And we went out to dinner before the game. And over dinner, of course, I was regaling him with stories. No surprise there. <laughs> And he pitched me on the idea of writing them up again, the way he and many others have been doing for years. And I gave him the usual disclaimers and refusals, etc. But then he shifted gears and he asked if I was familiar with a book called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it is a perennially best-selling memoir, if you will, by Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist written in a genre which might be referred to as told to, because Feynman basically just told his stories 
to a former trainee or acolyte who is now a full professor of physics in his own right. And then this guy wrote him up and Feynman edited him and they published it. That was decades ago. And the book is still a, a good seller to this day. It's a fascinating read. But the stories, it's not really a memoir because the stories are kind of disconnected. They're just stories. Mm -hmm. So what Randy said to me is, look, how about we try to emulate that process? We'll talk over the phone each week. I'll record the conversations. You'll think about it in advance, organize your stories in a chronological fashion. You'll tell them to me. I'll interject when I have questions or need further information. And then in the intervening week, I will write up the stories, send you the draft, you edit it, and we'll go back and forth till we're both happy with it. And we'll try to develop a narrative structure to it. So it just won't be disembodied stories. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounded intriguing, but I was not immediately hooked. I said, give me a little while to think about this. But certainly within a week, I said, you know, this, this sounds like it could be fun. And so we embarked on the process. And we talked, I'd say, anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours every week for a year, typically in one session. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he recorded and we followed exactly that process. And little by little, it, it sort of came to life. And then the next thing we knew, we had a manuscript. And then in terms of the process, we... I forget, we looked online, we talked to people, we were trying to find out who might be a good agent mm -hmm. to shop a book around. And of course, we were going not with an outline or a proposal for a book, we had the entire manuscript at that. And we found the name of a guy, I think his name is Jim Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. -E. Apparently, he's very well respected. We basically contacted three or four guys. One of the things I liked about Levine is that I don't know his exact age, but he's definitely in his 70s. And he might even be my age. I'm approaching 79. So I like the idea that an old geezer was still in the game. Right. Uh, <laughs> and of the four people we wrote to, one never responded. And two responded almost immediately. And then one responded a couple of weeks later. The one who responded the quickest, I mean, literally within 12 hours, was this guy, Jim Levine. And he said, look, I'm traveling abroad. This was pre-pandemic. I'm traveling abroad. Give me a few days to read it. And I'll certainly put in time on the plane on the way back and I'll be in touch. So he really liked it. He said, let me shop it around. Over the next few months, I think he contacted probably about 30 places. And there was good news and there was bad news. The good news uh, was that almost everybody really loved it. The bad news is nobody wanted to publish it, okay, because they said memoirs, much less scientific memoirs, that they just don't sell. And so that was kind of disappointing. But he said, no, he says you only need one acceptance. And he said, let's go again. So he, he wrote to some smaller houses. Obviously, the first 30 were all the big names, okay. And then he came up with the ones who ultimately took it, which is Pegasus, I think they're called in New York. Uh, it's a small publisher. It's a husband and wife. And uh, yeah, they said they wanted to take it on. Yeah, Pegasus Books. Yeah. And he liked it because he had never worked with them before. He wrote to them because he had heard good things, but he had never actually done a book with them. Uh -huh. So we signed a contract with them for a very modest advance or whatever it's called. And of course, neither of us 
did this for the money. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what I'm I'm not a wealthy man, but I mean, what I'm going to make from the book is nothing. Although it's I doing. I say it's like it should be like going out to dinner money. <laughs> I mean. You know, I just want to get my stories and messages right. in. Very often, it's it's going out to dinner money. Now, depending on how big the advance is, it might be uh, bigger dinners or fancier places, but still, yeah. Anyway, it, it's done quite well, although we still don't know. It was published in February, and we haven't gotten our first figures yet. I think initially they printed a few thousand. I mean, I was looking at it, and it's actually, like on Amazon, it's ranked overall on Amazon in the top... 85,000, which doesn't sound very high until you consider there's, I think, over 7 million books. On yeah, exactly. And it's in the top, you know, 50-ish under like cardiovascular yeah. health or disease. As all new authors, and maybe all authors do, Randy and I check those Amazon ratings from time to time. And, you know, in the first months after it was published, it was as high as I forgot about three or four thousand. Then it spent a few months, you know, around twenty or thirty thousand. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it swings for the most part between about sixty and one hundred and twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. And you know, every time I do a, you know, either a podcast or a lecture where I mention the book, you know, we get a little burst of sales. But they originally published, I think, three thousand copies. And they sold out very, very quickly. So they had to print some more. I mean, it's really a great read. I mean, it's very well written. It's very entertaining and engaging. And We've got so many nice comments about it. And what I love the best is that one, I mean, the book is written so that it's accessible. I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to read this. In fact, we deliberately put most of the science in what we call chapter notes. So mainly... The intended audience is anybody and everybody, but one particular fraction of that population has turned out to be aspiring physicians, scientists, and physician scientists, which is what I am. And we've gotten, I mean, the word that people have used, well, there are several words that have come up frequently in the things that people write to me about the book. The most common is inspirational. Mm which nothing makes me feel better than being able to inspire young people to sort of reach for what they want to do. But a lot of people say, you know, I actually laughed out loud at points in this book. I found myself actually laughing out loud. That makes me happy because, you know, I think as they say, truth is stranger and actually funnier than fiction. <laughs> I like your saying, truth is funnier than fiction. <laughs> it, really, it really is. I mean, the funniest things are things that really happened. Because, you know, our imaginations are somewhat limited and, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, you just say this can't be happening. <laughs> it's just too ridiculous, but it's happening. So you there know, it, it makes me think of something that I did read. And, and I think that this is an interesting theme because I found this to be true so often with scientists who do breakthrough research is, you know, a couple of times you write about, I think one was a professor and then another time was the NIH, your first NIH grant application when the guy said to you, you know, that's bullshit. You can't excel in all three right, areas. Uh, and, and tell us a little bit of, I know, you know, it's giving away some of the book, but I think that this is speaks volumes about how you need to think and who you need to be 
to achieve some of the things that you have? Well, if you frame it that way, I think one of the most important characters, let me talk, and again, this is material that I cover in the book, but people often ask me, especially young people, what do you need to succeed? Okay. And there's a whole, I could write a book about that. Maybe I should. But one thing you need, there's a Yiddish word called, and I see your name is Colucci, so you're obviously Jewish, right? Right. Italian Jewish. Anyway, same idea. Italian who grew up in a lot of Jewish neighborhoods, so I'll probably know the word, but go for it. I knew you were. (laughs) That was the word I had in mind. Yes, sir. You need to have some chutzpah. And in my game, that doesn't mean being a wise guy. It means having intellectual chutzpah. The idea or being able to challenge established ideas and concepts. Some people just culturally are not set up to do that. Especially I find people who come from rather authoritarian countries where there's a strict pecking order and, you know, sort of deal leader, this kind of thing. It's very hard to question what's thought to be authoritative fact. Where somebody like me basically comes from a very questioning point of view, where I don't fully accept any knowledge as written in stone. I mean, to me, everything's provisional, not because it's wrong, just because it's woefully incomplete. And we don't know how incomplete it is. So you need to have a little chutzpah. And the story you're referring to is when I was interviewing for a position at the NIH, this was during the Vietnam War, the guy who would ultimately turn out to be my mentor, but I'd we didn't, neither of us knew at the time that that would happen. He was interviewing me. He was one of 10 people I had interviews with. He asked me what I aspired to. At the time, I was uh, 23 years old. I had just graduated medical school, obviously somewhat precociously. And I was getting ready to start a two-year internship and in residency before I would have to go into the public health service because I had been drafted during the Vietnam War and drafted into the public health service. So you know, he asked what I wanted to do. I gave him the usual uh, boilerplate about, you know, I want to be a clinician. I want to be a scientist. I want to be an administrator, you know, the whole bit. And he was very brash. And he basically said, you know, that's BS, Lefkowitz. You can't do all those. You're going to have to make a decision somewhere along the line about what you're going to emphasize. So right off the bat, I was sort of being exposed to chutzpah. I mean, he was not shy, but he was right, of course. Although you can do all those things, you can't do them all equally well. There just aren't enough hours in the day, and you can't compete with somebody who's doing one of the three all the time if you're doing it a third of the time. So anyway, it's just a good example of how uh, chutzpah is an important thing that you need to be successful. But you ended up, you, you were a clinician, and then you did turn to research. Yes, I did. And when I give talks to young people and student groups these days, which I do a lot of, I often title my talk, A Tale of Two Callings, because I really did experience a calling to the practice of medicine. I was just a kid and I worshiped, I idolized my family physician, Dr. Joseph Feibusch in the Bronx. This was in the 40s and 50s when I was growing up. He would make house calls and I was just besotted. I mean, I loved this guy and what he did. He'd come with this black bag, almost like a magician. He'd open it and he'd pull out all these magical instruments, a stethoscope, an otoscope, an ophthalmoscope, the prescription pad, the whole, and he let me play with everything and listen to my heart. And I mean, I'd say by the time I was eight years old, I was convinced that 
there was not any question that that's what I would do. Uh, I never questioned that. I always loved science. Two of my favorite toys as a child were a microscope, a little mic. It was a toy microscope, but it actually worked, and a chemistry set. But despite that love of science, I never wanted to do any research, not at all. I just wanted to learn it so that I could be a better doctor. And in college and medical school, I never did any research, even though I had ample opportunities. I just wanted to be a physician. But then fate intervened. The Vietnam War was going on. There was a doctor draft. That meant, unlike the main draft for men over 18, which was a lottery draft, there was no lottery for physicians. Everybody was drafted. And you got two years deferment after medical school, and then you went in, Army, Navy, Air Force, or Public Health Service. Everybody wanted to get into the Public Health Service because that was the one service where you had a, at least a decent chance of not going to Vietnam. All the other services, you could pretty much take it to the bank. You were going to spend one of your two conscripted years in Vietnam. Public Health Service, you had a, a real shot at staying in the United States because they had to stay up prisons research institutions, et cetera, including NIH, CDC, et cetera. I was fortunate to get the commission in the public health service, and I was assigned to the NIH for two years, and I was miserable there. Uh, nothing worked. And for the first time in my life, I experienced protracted failure. I had never really failed at anything to that point in my young life, and so I hated it. And all it did was convince me that research would have nothing to do with my career, which is kind of what I always thought anyway. So at the end of my first year there, I made arrangements to go to the Mass General Hospital in Boston after the completion of my second year to finish my residency and then do cardiology fellowship. But during my final six months at the NIH, my project began to work. I published my first couple of papers, liked it, began to think about it a little more seriously, but not so seriously that I didn't turn down the repeated remonstrations of my mentors to stay on at the NIH for additional years because they said, your project is so hot. Mm -hmm. So I went off to the Mass General and threw myself back into clinical work, which was always my first love, as I told you, and I was good at it. But after six months of full-time clinical work, I realized that something was missing from my days and that I was not as fulfilled as I had been previously. And I eventually tumbled to the fact that what was missing was being in the lab and doing experiments and wrestling with scientific problems, et cetera. And so over the next two and a half years in Boston, I split my time. I found another mentor, went into his lab. I split my time between doing research and finishing my clinical training. And by the time I finished that, I was really sort of beginning to have another epiphany and experience another calling towards research. I went to Duke in 73 at the age of 30. And for the first year or two, I kind of split my time between doing clinical teaching on the wards. I'd say maybe 40% of the time, 60% getting my lab program going. But within the first few years, my lab program just took off. And within three, four years, I was probably spending 80, 90% of my time in the lab. And that was not a conscious decision to do that. It just sort of took me over. And that was the second calling. And for the next 30, five years, I continued to make rounds. And then 15 years ago, I hung that up, my stethoscope up for good. Now I'm completely in the lab and teaching. But there really were two callings, first to medicine and then to research. And I always, when I tell this story to the kids, I try to impress on them, you got to stay open. 
what comes along. Just because you think you want to do something when you're very young doesn't mean you're going to wind up doing that your whole life. And the, it was the lab work that led you to your Nobel Prize, as mm -hmm. I understand it. Absolutely correct. You know, it's interesting. When I was going to medical school and even before, I mean, to me, medicine just seemed like, and still does, the most glorious career. Because where in life can you find a career where you can do more good for people than to alleviate suffer, physical suffering, sometimes mental, cure diseases, and on uh, not rare occasions, actually save a human life. I mean, that's an amazing experience and it's an amazing privilege. But when I look back on my career, as it turned out, the number of people, the number of patients that I've reached through my research so dwarfs the number that I could have reached practicing medicine. I mean, the work that we did, not that I knew at the time that that would be the result of it, but the work we did in discovering this huge family of receptors for drugs and hormones is the basis for about a third of all FDA-approved drugs today. A third. That's 700 drugs are based on the discoveries we made. So even though I didn't realize it at the time, I've been able to reach tens of millions of patients rather than perhaps a few thousand. So that's a good feeling. But I, I can't say that that was the impetus to my going into research in the end. The impetus was simply curiosity. That's just what I had to do. I mean, I just had to do it. I mean, it's sort of like an artist has to paint. Mm -hmm. Why? As the kids in my lab would say, because that's just how he rolls. <laughs> I just, how I roll. I need to solve scientific problems. That's just who I am. Yeah, but I think, doesn't that always produce the best work, right? When what's motivating you isn't the award or the accolades that you might get. It's just you have this burning desire to explore something. You know, Absolutely that's really right. Exactly right. I think it's, whether it's sports or entertainment or the military or really whatever walk of life you wind up in, I think your best shot at realizing your potential, perhaps even exceeding it, whatever that means, is if you really just love it and just feel, as I did, a calling. And my remarkable blessing was to feel that calling on at least two separate occasions, two interrelated but very distinct activities. Yeah. So back to the memoir and the process a little bit. What would you say, I've been asking you two questions at once that you can answer, you know, in, in whatever order. But what would you say would be the was the most fun part of writing the memoir for you? And then what did you find to be the most difficult part for you of the process? For me, the fun part was getting to tell all my stories again. Okay. And in a framework where I wasn't really time limited, because I got a lot of material. <laughs> in fact, too much for one speech is what you mean. <laughs> exactly. Too much for one book, although I'm not sure. <laughs> but at the end of the process, we had created a document titled Left on the Cutting Room Floor. This was <laughs> all the stories that I had told Randy, but which did not really fit into the narrative structure we had developed. So we didn't use them. There were 75 stories left on the cutting room floor. So the most fun thing was getting to tell my stories. And generally, my stories represent the digression. Okay, so whoever I'm telling a story, they didn't come to me in that moment. 
to have me tell them stories. <laughs> right? Yeah, here for a purpose, okay? You know, it's either a graduate student who's come for right. advice or one of my go <laughs> over data. Something reminds me of a story, and off I go. But I am cognizant of the fact that that's not why they're here. I need to get on with it, get the story, and move on to what we're supposed to be doing. In telling the stories to Randy, I had no time constraint. That's what we were actually here for. So I would go on and on. Initially, I told you we talked an hour and a half to two hours. Initially, we were going to talk for an hour a week. That seems like a long time to talk, an hour. But then, you know, it was taking an hour and 15, then it was taking an hour and a half. I'll be honest with you. By the end, it was two hours every time. I think our longest was two hours and 20 minutes. He was probably hanging by a thread at that point. (laughs) I was just warming up into third gear. So that was the most fun part, actually, being able to tell the stories. And it was kind of fun going back over my life and, you know, checking with sources because, you know, we wanted it to be as accurate as possible. So, So whenever it was possible, which was not always, but whenever it was possible to fact check, we would do that. And that was yeah. kind of fun, especially with some of the stories where you really could find hard documentation of them. So that was fun. Now, what was most difficult? I can't say this was most difficult, but I'll change the question a little bit to what was my biggest concern both before and during the process? Great. And that, yeah. That's easy for me to identify. It was the issue of voice. So I have a characteristic voice, as everyone does. But if I'm not actually doing the primary writing myself, my concern was the accuracy with which Randy could capture my voice. And it's kind of interesting. Obviously, since you do podcasts, you know you've heard your own voice on tape many times, right? But like anybody who hears their voice recorded, we all know one thing, right? That's not me. Right, it can't right? be. <laughs> who is that person? <laughs> who is that person? If I really sounded like that, I'd shoot myself. Right. <laughs> so the same thing is true on the printed page. And so when we first started doing this, I was convinced he was not capturing my voice. And he said, trust me, Bob, this is you. I said, that's not me. I, well, anyway, that concern persisted through the entire exercise. Then when it was all done, and I was still making myself miserable over that, we gave the manuscript to quite a number of people who had trained with me or who knew me very well. And the question we put to them without one way or the other is, to what extent do you think this captures Bob's voice? And to a person, In fact, sometimes we didn't even ask them that question. We would just have them read it. And the commonest thing that came back is, this is amazing. It sounds exactly like you, Bob. When I read this, I can hear you telling the story. And that's when I finally relaxed. I said, well, it doesn't sound like it to me. But if everybody else says it, and everybody did, I know that he did a terrific job of this. I'm so glad you brought that up because that does come up sometimes when we're helping someone ghostwrite a manuscript. And I love that you told that story because it really, it is so similar, right? When you hear your voice recorded, it doesn't sound like you, but it is you. And it sounds like you to everyone else, right? Right, exactly. And and it really, you know, that could very well be why there is that kind of dissonance in the author's mind of, 
I don't yeah. think this sounds like me. No, really, it does. <laughs> once in a while, I would catch him up on something where, but we kind of scrubbed those things. There were very few of them where he would use an expression that I just don't use. Right. Okay. Yeah. And the one that he was, it was generally generational because we're from, you know, he's a generation after me. Right. So one of them that I just mentioned because we had to scrub it on so many occasions is the phrase to hang out. Okay. Oh so yeah. Have me hanging out with somebody. No. One, Randy, I don't hang out. Okay. <laughs> but I do. I spend time with people. I visit to people. I talk to people. I don't hang out. It's just not what right. I do. Okay. Right. <laughs> so we, we got all the hangout. Actually, I think I let a few of them stand. One or a couple. No, two. Just to, put, uh, just to put Randy's mark on it. <laughs> and you know, that is so true too, that I find that with every author, that everyone has kind of their favorite word or phrase that sometimes there's a tendency to overuse. And so sometimes we have to go in with a find replace and pull out that word and come up with something else. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Mm -hmm. Also, it still has to be in your voice and in your, you know, something you would say, right? And Randy and I have a terrific rapport. He was always, well, yeah, I would say he's one of my favorites, but most of them are my favorites. I mean, I just get along very well with my trainees. And we've even done a few virtual book events together. And often people comment on, on what an easy rapport and relation usually are. He'll ask me questions, you know, sort of based on the book. But we do, I think that not just anybody can do that. First of all, Randy writes beautifully. I was going to say, for a, especially for a scientist, you know, yeah. I mean. <laughs> I think, you know, he admitted to me he always wanted to write a book. And he, he reads voraciously outside of scientific literature, unlike myself. And I think this was a bit of a fantasy for him. And I credit him so much on this. This was a true collaboration. And, you know, he did all the primary writing based on hundreds of hours of recording. And yeah, I mean, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. I have to agree with you. I mean, obviously, I know a lot about good writing and it's yeah. very really well written right. I, it was it was surprising to see you know because no formal training let's face, it, let's face it scientists aren't always the best you know right absolutely <laughs> good he's, at other stuff <laughs> he's terrific in that you know it's good because we like each other and it's given us additional time together that we wouldn't have had and that continues that's wonderful so do you think that there might actually be another book in you i think probably not but uh, we'll keep the idea alive. But uh, I really think that this book got the best of my stories. And I've read a number of sequels and books and where, you know, you can kind of tell this wasn't the first line material. Especially I've seen that happen when somebody publishes a book and it does quite well. So then they come back with sort of another one, which is supposed to be more of the same, but it isn't as good. You can tell that they're really stretching. So we're not going to put out book two, which is called The, the Cutting Room Floor. Well, maybe. if we do, we're not going to call it that. <laughs> that would probably be good. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. As you see, during this conversation, you found yourself laughing a lot. And that's true of most conversations.
that involved me. And so I've thought a lot about why that might be. And I actually have a little riff on that in the book, because I think that, here, let me see if I can find it, explain it to you, but I think I can find it. It's in my chapter on mentoring. Laugh and have fun. This is number nine. Since humor is a great prod to creativity, in my experience, the more people are laughing, the more creative they become. This may be due to the fact that humor requires seeing unusual connections between things. Getting a joke is like making a little discovery. You have a flash of insight, and suddenly you see a funny connection that you didn't previously see. The creativity required for humor can prime the mind for other sorts of creativity. For this reason, I'm constantly joking around in meetings with my trainees with the humorous tone, hopefully setting the stage for inspiration. And I'll read you a little vignette that sort of illustrates, you know, what I actually do. Yeah, this so, is great. A few years, so here's a story. A few years ago, I had a conference call with a pharmaceutical company about a potential collaboration. I was on the call with four young postdoctoral fellows from my lab at Duke, and we were talking with four or five scientists from the company. The leader of the company's scientific team started off the call. Okay, Professor Lefkowitz, let me introduce my team. We have here Carlos, who is our director of chemistry, and Nina, who is our director of molecular screening. When I heard these introductions, I decided on the spot that I was not going to be done. The four young postdocs from my lab didn't have any titles. They were just postdocs. However, the pharmaceutical company folks, on the other hand, the other end of the call didn't know that. Of course, this was before Zoom, so... When it was my turn to speak, I ad-libbed a series of introductions. Great, thank you, now I'll introduce my team. I've got here Aaron, who's our director of protein purification, and Scott, our director of mass spectrometry. As I was making the introductions, my trainees began cracking up as I gave them fancy-sounding titles. <laughs> Fortunately, it was a regular phone call, not a video conference, so the people on the other end of the call couldn't see my postdocs trying to stifle their laughter. It was a funny moment, and it led to a productive conference call with lots of creative ideas being tossed around by the members of my group. Interestingly, several weeks later, we had another call with some of the same people from my group and a different company. And I pulled the same trick, only I changed my guy's titles. The guy who was chief of this, I now had was chief of that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, yes, I do think that humor, the essential elements in humor are very similar to making scientific discoveries. It's sort of seeing relationships that maybe somebody else wouldn't see it that way. Now, there's a caveat, though, that I always warn people, and that's that there are only two kinds of people, I'm quite sure. People who are funny and people who aren't funny. And I <laughs> tell people that there's, there's no crime in not being funny, but there's something you have to remember. If you're not funny, don't try to be funny. Because there's <laughs> nothing worse. You know what I'm talking about. There's nothing worse than an unfunny person trying to say something funny. It makes your skin crawl because right. they miss the mark even if it's just by a couple of degrees and everybody just sort of looks at each other and they're saying, wow, he thought that was funny. You know, anyway, so if you're not funny, you just don't try to be funny. It's as simple as that. But, you know, I love what you're saying. I've never heard someone talk about humor as a catalyst for scientific discovery, but it makes so much sense. I mean, what a terrific insight. I find that it really, I have lab meetings every week. They go on for three hours. I always live in them with a great deal of humor and first of all, it relaxes people, but it really gets the creative juices flowing, you know, as I'm flinging out these zingers, you know, which 
you got to stay sharp because I'm pulling things from different places, which, by the way, is a problem for some of those where English is a second language, especially oh, some wow. Asian trainees. Sure. I'm looking around my office and, you know, I'll have like 15, 18 people in here. And as I'm saying these funny things, I'm scanning the group. And alas, I can see sometimes, you know, somebody from China or Japan it's going right over their head. And that's too bad. But anyway, I really do feel that when we really get people going on that uh, humorous role, that creative ideas just seem to flow from all sides. Yeah, and I would imagine it probably emboldens them a little bit too, right? Because you it's more of a state of play than like, this is totally serious research. We have to get everything right, right from the beginning, you know. Playfulness is a huge part of my style. And the lab is sort of like my... And it's always been sort of like my sandbox. This is my playground. This is where I play. And yeah, I think playfulness is very important because, you know, people are at their most creative in their earliest years. I mean, you know, if you look at kids when they're playing, when they're three, four, five, I mean, their imaginations are so amazing. And uh, I have young grandchildren. And, you know, when I play with them, we all have a lot of fun because I just go right with them. Whatever they're imagining, I'm right with, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So playfulness, humor, creativity, to me, all part of the same sort of creative enterprise. Like you said, seeing those connections that aren't obvious. Mm -hmm. That's key to the whole thing. And I'll tell you something else. When I used to teach clinical medicine, so the major arena in which I did that is I would have a rotation of two months where for eight weeks, six days a week, I would round in the hospital with a group of students, interns, and residents. I was what's called the attending physician. They would present the new cases. I would go over them with them, go to the bedside, review the findings, sign off or not sign off. And then we'd also make rounds on all the patients who'd been previously admitted every day. So I felt an important part of that exercise was role modeling what it means to be a compassionate physician. Just like in the lab, I mean, it's all, mentoring is all about role modeling. It's an apprenticeship. You watch somebody who's good at it, and that's how you get good at it. So one of the things I would always do is sit on the edge of the bed. I would always touch the patient. I would always do a little physical exam, even if they didn't need one, because laying on of hands is healing in and of itself. But I prided myself Of course, there were some exceptions to this, but not a lot, that no matter how severely ill a patient was, no matter how dire their prognosis, I could always make them smile or laugh. Hmm. That's tricky, okay, when you have somebody who's nearing the end of life and who has a dire prognosis and knows they do, to get them to actually laugh, that takes some artistry, which I learned over a period of decades. And I would try to model that for my trainees to say, look, it doesn't matter how sick they are, you can still lighten their burden if you know what to do, if you know how to do it. So even it's not just in the laboratory where I'm trying to empower people by using humor. It's even at the bedside. I think one can do that. Well, Bob, this has been so fantastic and fun and inspiring. (laughs) And I think that your book would be a great book to have by the bedside if you if you do find yourself in the hospital that, that, 
maybe a trusted friend or family member or a physician could read to a person and help to lighten their load for sure. Well, you know, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, one aspect of the book and my life, which we didn't touch on, is the fact that I myself, I'm not just a cardiologist, but a cardiac patient. I inherited strong genes for coronary artery disease from my parents, both parents, mother and father. Father died very young, fourth heart attack at age 63. And I developed angina at age 50 and had quadruple bypass, but that was almost 30 years ago. And in the book, I tell the story of the various measures that I've taken in terms of reducing risk factors and dealing with the anxieties that that all produced. So I think that's another aspect of the book, which people who might have such problems might find inspiring. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And the healing power of laughter is undisputed, yeah? Unreal. I mean, I must say, it's what has saved me down through the years, I can tell you that. Well, thank you again for being on the Author's Corner. My pleasure indeed, Robin. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I hope that your listeners find it enjoyable and funny. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.